Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, discovery, and tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by Sandra Vachter. Sandra is a professor of technology and regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, where she researches the legal and ethical implications of AI, big data, and robotics, as well as internet and platform regulation. Her current research focuses on profiling, inferential analytics, explainable AI, algorithmic bias, diversity, and fairness, as well as governmental surveillance, predictive policing, human rights online, and health and medical law. She studied law at the University of Vienna and has a PhD in technology, intellectual property, and democracy. So we take this, this idea in this series to take one idea or case and examine the larger implications for just the field of technology ethics. And today we're going to do a deeper dive into your article in the Tulane Law Review called The Theory of Artificial Immunability, Protecting Algorithmic Groups Under Anti-Discrimination Law. So I thought we could start with kind of the, I'm putting this in air quotes, the problem that you are trying to address and when you, that's usually how these things start, is you see a problem and then you're trying to figure out how to address it. So what was that problem that you saw that you were trying to address with this paper? Yes. So I'm I'm very much interested in the question of algorithmic accountability and how we can make those systems work for us rather than against us. And I think most of us will be aware that one of the issues that always comes up with AI is that they can be discriminatory. And I think many, many fantastic people have written on this. Um, One of the reasons why this is the case is because, you know, it's collecting historical data and therefore is transporting inequalities from the past into the future. And so very often you have data that links back to protected attributes such as ethnicity or gender, sexual orientation, religion, age, those kinds of things. And so there's very interesting research going on and I have done my share fair in this area as well. But then I came to realize that another thing is happening as well, that algorithms are not just grouping us similar to protected attributes. They're also grouping us according to groups that fall outside of non-discrimination law. So, for example, you could be applying for a job. And if you were to use a browser such as Internet Explorer or Safari, you're more likely to get rejected than if you used Chrome or uh, Firefox, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that's quite interesting because obviously browser usage or Safari user group is not something that is protected under the law, but nonetheless, it's holding you back in the same way. And so I started to realize that AI is grouping us in all those different types of groups, making very important decisions about us, yet the group that I'm part of has no protection under the law. And so I got interested in this topic. That's great. Right. And I think um, because sometimes, and especially in the more technical work, we see people really focusing on protected classes as a, a shorthand for lots of things. Like if we could fix this protected class, but the problem is always that there's a lot of things going on around grouping. And you mentioned two groups that are that you see, these algorithmic groups. And I didn't know if you could explain. I thought that it was interesting how you categorize these two types of algorithmic groups that you were worried about or that we should be thinking about. And if you could explain those. I think one is like non-protected and then the other incomprehensible. Yes, exactly. It, it makes sense to categorize them because it just shows how deep the problem actually goes. So um, there are algorithmic groups that are created by an algorithm 
that fall outside non-discrimination law because they're not seen as a protected attribute. This could be, I'm not getting a loan because I have a dog, dog ownership as a group. Right. It could be Safari user. It could right. be fast scrollers. It could be football players, sad teenagers, video gamers. Those are all groups that are already being used to make decisions about people, but those groups don't have any protection. On the other side, there are algorithmically created groups where we don't even have human understanding or human language to describe what's going on, yet they are being used to make decisions about you. So it's, you know, electronic signals that you send out by your computer where we don't have a human concept to describe what that actually is. And so protection for that is even harder because I don't even have a social concept to describe what's going on. Right. And so I think, and this is where I thought the, um, what I really liked about the paper. So it was kind of, you could see this process of, there seems to be something wrong that we're using these groupings to make a decision about someone. They're not fitting into these classes that we've decided are protected. And so before jumping to saying, why should we protect them? You take the step and say, what were we trying to do with discrimination law and protected classes? Like, what was the point? Like, what what work was that doing for us? And could that actually apply in that situation? And so it's it just, as anyone is interested, I would say there's a great explainer in some ways, like a small literature review of what is the theory behind and the reason why we have discrimination law um, that really allows you to come away and say, okay, this is the work that discrimination law is doing for us. And there are places that this might actually apply Aside, is that a fair point? Aside from protected classes, yes, absolutely. I think you have actually just summarized it better than I did in the paper. <laughs> um, that's absolutely correct. Yes, I, I did try to find out what makes a group worthy of protection, and came to the conclusion that those either nonsensical groups or non-protected groups just don't really fit into that into that concept. And I started thinking about what's the underlying purpose? What, what does the law actually want for us? What would society look like if the law got its way? And so at a very, very basic level, right, the idea is that the law wants you to be independent and self-sustaining. The law wants you to be your own person, to steer your path in life and make your luck, basically. And that includes mm -hmm. various things. That means you should have the ability to get an education. That means you should have the ability to train and learn for a profession, get a job at some point. It means that you're entitled to health care. It means that you should have enough food and shelter. And so if you think about those sectors, those are really needed to be an independent, self-sustaining person. And so the law has decided that the protected attributes are protected because we humans have used them as reasons to pull people back from getting education, from getting healthcare, from realizing their life goals, right? And it just so happened that those were the criteria that we decided upon why we're holding people back because we have biased beliefs about gender and ethnicity. Well, algorithms also holding us back, but just using different criteria that we would never think of. We would never think of holding somebody back because of their browser usage. But the effect is the same, right? I'm being held back based on an attribute that I actually really don't have any play in acquiring. It is something that is assigned to me without me being aware of it. Right. And and this is where I think it, it has like a general um, application. Like, so it has it, it's definitely for the law. 
and kind of saying, like, we need to start thinking about this a little bit differently. And I think we sometimes talk, like, in, in business or just in general about, well, is this discriminatory? Is this a discriminatory? discriminatory behavior, and it immediately goes to protected classes, well, it's not discrimination if it's not protected classes, um, as if that's the, they have to go together. And you, what you do is say, hold on, what, like, what was the end goal? What was the law envisioning for us when it was written? What world did it want to create? And is there another way that we're actually undermining that world in some way that we need to actually shore this up in some way? And what you, I like, this is a good quote, is when you say, this is not my words, these are yours. They all these views are, have one thing in common. Discriminatory behaviors carry with them an assumption of moral superiority. This means that discriminatory behavior demeans an individual, considers them of lower moral value, promotes negative stereotypes and prejudice, treats them with disrespect, and has a negative impact on their deliberate freedom, autonomy, dignity, or life choices or benefits. And so, and... And this is the idea of why discriminatory behavior is wrong. You know, so like this is like the wrongness of discriminatory behavior. And it doesn't ever mention protected classes in that. I mean, there's no, you know, only according to religion, national, you know, origin, ethnicity. It doesn't say anything about that. It just has a general vision of like behavior that would be discriminatory and then and, and why people deserve protection um, based on what you're going to say is arbitrary groupings that we might have. And so I think so I would say in general that was a great summary of the um of kind of why we have discrimination law and then why we've intended to do it for protected classes and I thought maybe you could take a moment to talk about kind of your step from discrimination this is what it does this is why we avoid it this is the vision for the future and then why it should apply to these groupings, or just not discrimination law, and it's, they don't have to be protected classes because we couldn't enumerate them all, but why we need to start thinking about them as being needing protection. Yes. So I actually borrowed a little bit from the, the literature in terms of, of terminology. So I chose the word artificial immutability. And so that's borrowed from um, one idea that certain protected attributes are protected because you had no hand in acquiring them and you wouldn't be able to change them. That includes, for example, age. That includes ethnicity. And so the law always thinks you should only, only be based on actions that you, that, you, that you do rather than things that you have no control over. And so I borrowed that because, you know, we would usually think about immutable characteristics as something that is has some of a quote unquote natural source maybe, right? right. That, is, that is being given to you. And so I thought about it's artificially created immutability. Right. So it's not in the sense that I was maybe born with it, but it was assigned to me. And there are various ways of making it de facto immutable. So for example, if I don't know what criteria are being used to make hiring decisions, then they are immutable, de facto immutable, because I can't actually control any of those things, right? If you're using face recognition software, right, um, to decide if I should get a loan, that doesn't mean I can move my retina differently, even though that's a decision criteria, right? Or the sweat that I have on my face. And so it means that the criteria that are being used are assigned to me, but they're immutable to me. I cannot actually change it. And traditionally, that's a problem because, you know, if you say you have to have good grades to get into university, that means, you know, you, you're going to study, um, you're going to prepare well, and then you're going to have good grades, and then you go into a good college or get a good job, right? There's control over that criteria. 
with moving your retina, it's never going to be possible. I'm never going to be able to control my heartbeats um, in the same way. And so algorithms just create a new type of mutability that has the same effect as in I cannot control it, but it's just artificially assigned to me rather than given by birth. And that was like the a kind of aha in the paper. I mean, the, uh, there was an aha around discrimination, but I like the idea of we all know that protected classes, the reason why we don't like people to be discriminated against against for protected classes, it might be historical reasons, but it's also because you can't change it. It's immutable. It's the idea that it's an attribute of you and it shouldn't be, and we should be choosing you based on something else um, that you add some control over. So, but what your point was, and you do a great job of like identifying also like why something should be, is considered immutable. Like if we don't know about it, we can't change it. If something is kind of sticky in some way and that why would that be any different in the law or how we think about things that we shouldn't be discriminated against or treated differently based on something that we haven't given, been given a chance to change if we could. Yes, exactly. And so what um, could you say a little bit more about what makes something immutable? Yes. So I came up with a couple of criteria that make something, in, in my opinion, immutable. So it could either have to do with opacity, as in I don't really know what the decision criteria are. Therefore, I have no control over. It might be that the decision criteria are too vague. So I could tell you, you know, your friends on Facebook have an impact on whether you get a loan. That doesn't really give me the ability to know who's a good friend. So again, I have really no control. How can I put my best foot forward if I don't know what's a good Facebook friend? Stability, right? If If the criteria are constantly changing, I have no control over that process. I know good grades get me into university, but what if that changes? And at some point it's my dog and the year after it's my browser and the year after it's right. retina. So I can actually prepare and have control over the path in life if that's constantly changing. Involuntariness is another one. Again, face recognition software that measures how your retina moves that I can't control the sweat on your face, your heartbeat. And the last one is if there's no social concept for the word. So that comes back to those two groups, like the dog owners where there's a word for it, but it's not protected. And then those human ununderstandable groups where there is no social concept. So if I don't even have a human understanding of what that group actually means, how can I put a good loan application? Yeah, right. Just yeah. electronic signals. And so those are very different types of immutability than we would usually think when we think about age, for example. But that's why I'm saying they're artificially created because they're in effect the same, they're de facto immutable because I have no control over them. And it also goes towards like if you don't under if if you can't I don't want to use the word explain but if the the idea of not having a word for why so if we either if we don't know why you were denied a job it's as fuzzy um, as anything and so how are we it's it, it there's some immutable attribute of you that we have now made a decision based on but we can't explain it so how would you by definition ever be able to change it in the future or get better at it yeah. um, if we're not able to explain it to you and I think that the other thing that's so interesting is, these are constructed, right? Like you're saying, they're artificially created. They're constructed by the organization that either designs, develops, or deploys the AI system. And so in some ways, they're creating their own problems. I mean, they create their own problems with regular old discrimination too. But you can almost see each of those being like, how could we possibly try to make better decisions not on immutable attributes of people? Not why? How could we not create an immutable, immutable excuse me, attribute in our design of AI? So it, one way it speaks to regulators to say, whether or not, should this be something that we're looking at for regulation, um, if people are making, organizations are making 
decisions based on immutable attributes because we've said in the past that we don't like that. But then you could ask organizations, why are you creating an immutable attribute? You know what I mean? Like, and this is how you're making that immutable attribute. Is that fair? Like it could have design implications and regulatory implications. Yes, I think I, I think it could have both. And I think it would be in the interest of both sides to actually dig deeper um, because I think, you know, figuring out why an immutable characteristic is relevant for the decision at hand is just normatively something that is valuable, but also just something that could be very interesting for a company to know, you know, is dog ownership really a good predictor for repairing a <laughs> loan or not? It would be a good thing to know more about that, right? And unfortunately, right. very little is, is done at the moment to find out what the causal relationship between the data points is, because very often it's just good enough to rely on correlation rather than causation. Um, this is not to say that immutable characteristics are always problematic. Right, I, would, right, I, would, right. I would just apply a similar idea to how we deal with immutable characteristics in traditional settings. So for example, on the face, prima facie, yes, immutable characteristics is always going to be a problem because you cannot control it. But there are exemptions if you can justify it. For example, age is an immutable characteristic, but we have laws against child labor that are based on age. And that's a good thing, right? Right. We have right. other characteristics we have, for example, that you have to have perfect eyesight when you're a pilot, immutable right. characteristic, but there is a reason that this is acceptable, for example, right? We have schools for gifted children on a particular IQ that you can change, right? And so there are situations in our society where it is acceptable to use immutable characteristics, but you need to explain why it is acceptable to use a characteristic that you cannot change. And when you can do right. that, then I'm happy for you to use an artificially mutable characteristic. If you can, if you can tell me why it's acceptable, I cannot change it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's brilliant, really. I mean, I just think it it was it's a great example of trying to say, you know, why why do we care about these protected classes or this one category of things? And even though it looks differently, it looks different right now. It does. It seems like, oh, it's not a protected class. Well, is it doing the same work as a protected class? And is the should our same thinking about the law around protected classes apply to the way we think about artificial immutable traits. And so that's what I really liked about it is that the decomposing, you know, what we're doing with discrimination law and then kind of reapplying it to another area to say, look, this this is also similar to these protected classes in certain ways. And then by doing it this way, I have to say just by especially enumerating the ways it's immutable it's super helpful just the way that you said it because it would allow someone to say, how am I contributing to this being immutable? And can I justify any one of these types of immutability that I'm giving as an making an attribute? And so I think that it's really in that way prescriptive as well, but not only by saying, you know, this is what we should be doing, but saying, if you don't want immutable attributes, don't make them. You know what I mean? Like, so, or, or justify it, you know, or justify why, and maybe there's a good business case. And then the last bit is, of course, if you can't articulate why you're making a decision, you know, it falls into the, the fifth group, you know, which is, it's immutable, you know, if all intents and purposes. And so that's not where you want to be. And so it gives organizations an incentive 
to be able to articulate why they're making a decision, which I always like, you know, like, so that's, that's a good thing. And I'll, I'll end with, the, you have a great quote, I'll just read it from, it's towards the end of the paper. And you say, algorithms, as opposed to humans, do not make decisions based on prejudices or the idea of inferior worth. But in the same way, they prevent people from accessing goods and services. They do this by creating groups that effectively act as immutable characteristics that individuals are unable to change and have no control over. As a result, individuals lose the ability to exercise their rights and freedoms and gain access to goods and services. Therefore, the harm is the same as the originally imagined in anti-discrimination law, only the mode and process of bringing them about are different. And I just thought that's a great encapsulation of the article and kind of why it's important because a lot of times these algorithms are actually being you know, used on rights and freedoms and taking away access to goods and services and, and, and important decisions like employment, credit, getting into schools. So I love it. Thank you so much. I'm very, very glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And it's the thing is, I think, you know, it's in Tulane Law Review. So it's obviously in a law review and it's it's based on anti-discrimination law and discrimination law. But I, I really think that the implications are much broader, the way that people need to start thinking about the groupings that they're creating. Um, and that's where I think it has like kind of a general application to tech ethics. Um, and speaking of which, are there, we always like to end with a wrap up of is there anyone kind of in the area of tech ethics broadly? I mean, a lot of us read across disciplines. So is there anyone in the area of tech ethics that you think, oh, I can't wait for them to write again or see what they're presenting and anyone we should keep an eye on? Yes, I, I would highly recommend to keep an eye on Dr. Amy Orban, who is now at Cambridge. She's a psychologist and she's interested in the questions of online harm online harms broadly, but particularly on social media, on young people and mental health issues. And so she's doing extremely interesting, insightful, peer-reviewed, empirical work to actually figure out what the harm is that, that people experience when, when they are experiencing life online. Oh, that's great. That's great. And super important because I don't think they're not, they're obviously not capturing, they being platforms aren't capturing all the costs that they create um, when they're making money online. So it's it's helpful to have someone enumerate exactly what those harms might be. That's a great recommendation. Well, gosh, Sandra, thanks you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and talking just briefly about your paper. Thanks yeah, so much thank for taking so the much time. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Such a pleasure to be here anytime again. Oh, I will take you up on it. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.